friends. Welcome to the Sela podcast. Aaron here. We are continuing our journey through our series on community. And when it was decided we'd be taking this journey together, uh, I knew that there was a kind of community that I really wanted to spend some time exploring together. And so in our time today, uh, we're going to be looking at a uniquely deep and beautiful kind of community, uh, a kind that we see in all kinds of different places, a kind that actually believe that we were created for, that our soul longs for, and yet it's a kind of community that far too few experience in our cultural moment. So here's what I do want to do. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 5, looking at a moment in the life of Peter. This is what we read beginning in verse 1. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gesenaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets nearby. He got into one of those boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had just taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. I love this story for a lot of different reasons. Uh, I love this moment uh, in the life of Peter because this was the moment where everything changed for himself or James, John, their companions. This was the moment that Peter and the others moved from being maybe a spectator of Jesus, an admirer of Jesus, an acquaintance of Jesus, to a follower of Jesus. And we know that Jesus and, and Peter had interactions before this moment. They'd already spent some time together. Uh, He had been introduced to Jesus through his brother, Andrew. Um, He had already received his new name from Jesus. Jesus had actually been in Peter's home and healed his mother-in-law. So when we get to this passage in Luke 5, I mean, Peter's had some pretty powerful touch points with Jesus already, like real encounters that no doubt had him wrestling with who this Jesus was and the potential implications on his own life and what that might mean for his future. But this time, Jesus's miracle is directed at Peter and his companions, showing that not only did Jesus have the power to heal human illness, but also in the area in which I think Peter probably thought himself the most authoritative, the most proficient right? Fishing, where he'd spent most of his time and probably thought that he had seen it all at this point. He sees in this moment that Jesus also rules over that too. And by simply saying a word could accomplish the impossible. So Peter recognizes 
a couple things, I think, in this moment. One, that Jesus was much more than a man. There is something divine happening. Uh, this is a power. This is an authority that he's never seen before. And two, that in his presence, Peter is suddenly made aware of just how sinful he is uh, in the presence of the holiness of God. And he actually begs Jesus to leave. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a, I'm a sinful man. But instead of leaving, Jesus offers Peter and his companions both comfort and an invitation, right? He says, don't be afraid, Peter. I mean, from now on, everything is going to change for you. From now on, you're going to fish for people. And I love his response along with James and John and the others. So they pulled up their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. And now for Peter and his companions, the adventure of following Jesus really begins. And what an adventure it was. I mean, in the months and years that would follow this day, they would be swept up in the greatest adventure of their lives. I mean, they trekked the countryside together. They sat at the rabbi's feet, listened to his words, processed them around the campfire at night, and watched Jesus put flesh on those words in incredible ways, day in and, and day out. They watched as their little band of Jesus followers began to grow along the way, including into the fold, a diverse group increasingly of men and women, many of whom I think we should point out never would have chosen one another as companions. Uh, They probably wouldn't have hung out under any other circumstances. Uh, Over and over, they're watching these miracles that defy possibility that Jesus just keeps doing. I mean, they watched as Roman leaders, you know, their sworn enemies and the occupying force under which they had struggled came and they bowed before this carpenter rabbi asking for his help. They would watch as this small ragtag band of ragamuffins would grow at times into the hundreds, even thousands of people. And they would also watch as many of those people would return home when their expectations were frustrated or their leaders' teachings became too costly or too hard. In time, this little community would, they would do all sorts of things together. They would create together. They would risk together. They would succeed at some things together, and they would fail uh, at things together. Together, they were sent out on mission in small teams at times, and then they'd return to debrief with their rabbi and their comrades before, uh, before being sent out to do it again. And somehow, some way, over time, this mixed bag of followers would become so much more than acquaintances who just happened to share a common rabbi. They would become a deeply knit community formed around a common mission. And then, of course, after the resurrection, we find that Jesus calls them to go do it again and again, to go and create communities of people who would follow in the way of Jesus together, partnering with God in what he was up to in the world, right? Just as the Father has sent me, uh, now I am sending you. You've seen how I've done it. You've experienced this. Now go and make disciples of all nations. And I think this this picture of this community and what the pictures that we read about in the, the first church, say in the book of Acts and, and the early Jesus communities that followed, they experienced 
a very unique kind of community as they were worshiping God and inviting new people in and building bigger tables and, and sharing and embodying a message that proclaims that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, right? As they cared for the poor and the widow and the displaced and they're planting churches and they're sharing the gospel is, uh, I think we could describe it with a word that anthropologists call communitas. And that's what I want to look at uh, in our time together. This word communitas uh, was actually coined in the 60s by an anthropologist by the name of Victor Turner. And Turner studied these young men in an African tribe called the Nandimbu. And basically what happened is these boys would grow up in the safety of the village with their mothers until they turned somewhere around 13 years old. And once they turned 13 years old or somewhere around there, never knew when it was going to happen, the fathers would come in and actually take the boys in the middle of the night out deep into the African bush and leave them there. And they had no help. They had no chaperones. Uh, they were left out there together to figure out how to survive. And so it was, in many ways, it was a rite of passage, right, from, from boyhood into, into manhood. And when they left the village, they were boys. And when they fought the elements together and survived, they returned to the village as young men. And Turner used this word communitas to describe the unique community that is that developed as these boys lived out their common mission together. Now, what was their common mission? To survive, right? To not die. Uh, their common mission was to figure out a way to make it as they braved the elements and tried to build a shelter and find food and all those things. And Victor Turner used this word communitas to describe this this kind of community uh, that is uniquely deep and beautiful that that is forged when a community, a group of people live out a shared critical mission together. And in a study, what, what Turner found is there is no community like the one that is formed around a critical mission. He said, that is communitas. And I believe that communitas, this form of, of community that we're talking about, is something that our souls long for. In fact, I believe it's something that we were created to experience together. And of course, if that's true, then we should expect to see communitas in other places as well. And we do. We actually see it all over the place. One place we see it, and your mind maybe has already gone there, is in the lives of soldiers. Right, so recently I was uh, listening to Tyler Statton uh, share about a journalist by the name of Sebastian Younger who actually writes about this. He doesn't use the word, but he's describing communitas. And Younger was, uh, he covered the war in Afghanistan for over a decade. And for most of that time, he lived in military outposts alongside U.S. troops. And while he was there, he noticed this strange phenomenon among soldiers whose contracts were coming to an end. And what he found is for months, you know, they would talk about how they can't wait to get home to see loved ones, uh, to eat whatever they want to eat, to go where they want to go, uh, to get away from the grind and the hardships of military deployment. And when their contracts were up, they would say goodbye and head home. And then over and over, six months later, he'd see the soldier again, having voluntarily re-enlisted for another tour. And then for some of them, another tour and another tour. And this is something he found over and over again. And so Younger began to ask a question, why is it that for so many, what they experience in war seems to ultimately prove more desirable than what they're offered in peace? Why do soldiers return time and time again to a hard life 
in the barracks, in rejection of a cozy life in the suburbs among friends and family. Right? And this question actually led him to, to write a book uh, called Tribe, in which he explores other places that he sees a very similar phenomenon. And one parallel phenomenon uh, we find in American history back in the 1700s, and is that a, a surprising number of American settlers, after being raised uh, in European society and with all of the culture, uh, cultural values and rhythms and um, that lifestyle, travel across the ocean to establish a new society in a new land, then would leave their society to join the native tribes of America. And interestingly, there are next to no examples of the opposite happening of a native leaving a tribe to join the colonial society, which is really fascinating when you consider all of the, the technological advances and creature comforts that were available in the colonial life that were not available in the tribal life in the 1700s. So one person that wrote about this is actually Benjamin Franklin. In 1753, he writes this. He said, when a Native American child has been brought up among us, taught our language, and habituated to our customs, if he goes to see his relations and make one Native ramble with him, there is no persuading him ever to return. Right? In other words, according to Ben Franklin, he's saying, even when a Native child is adopted at a very young age, as a baby, into a European family and grows up in the civilized world, given just a taste of the tribal life, they leave the colony for the tribe every single time. And he, Franklin goes on to note that the opposite almost never happens. He writes, even a colonial settler who is taken as a prisoner of war by a native tribe, once they've adjusted to the tribal community, never chooses to return. He writes this, even if they're rescued through ransom by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail with them to stay among the English, yet in a short time, they become disgusted with our manner of life and take the first good opportunity of escaping again into the woods, right? And, and so he asks, like, who would ever willingly choose an objectively harder life, one with less comfort, less convenience, less familiarity, when they're offered the alternative? Which is the exact same question that Sebastian Younger was asking of those soldiers in the barracks in Afghanistan. And his conclusion is a robust sense of community oriented around a critical mission does more to enliven the human heart than comfort, wealth, ease, or social progress ever could. And, and listen, this is not just like a romanticized uh, take from one journalist hundreds of years later. It, it seems to be the actual consensus at that time. Uh, one early French-American writer says this, says thousands of Europeans are Indians, and yet we have no examples of even one of these aboriginals having from choice become European. There must be, he writes, in their social bond, something singularly captivating and far superior to anything we can boast of. So among us connecting these dots, right, from the 17th century American frontier to the 20th century war-torn Middle East, Younger makes this observation. And I think this is so good. This is a word for us. He writes, a person living in a modern city or suburb can, for the first time in history, go through an entire day or an entire life mostly encountering complete strangers. They can be surrounded by others and yet feel deeply, dangerously alone. The evidence that this is hard on us is overwhelming. Younger's conclusion is that soldiers return to war for the same reason that European settlers return to the woods. 
because they found a community in a thicker sense, a community that required sacrifice, a giving up of many modern conveniences, and yet it was worth it because it had woken up longings that were deeper than the sacrifices they were given up. What is that? That, my friends, is communitas. It's fascinating, isn't it? And yet at the same time, it also makes so much sense. Just think about, for example, the stories that we write and share. Think about the classic literature. Over and over, we're telling these stories. Think think just a uh, really, really easy one. Think about movies, right? Can, can you think of any that involve a group of people having to come together to accomplish a mission, right? I mean, we could do this all day. Uh, Goonies, I'm going to date myself here. Princess Bride, uh, some classics. Uh, Lord of the Rings, right? So many of the superhero movies, uh, Marvel, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, Saving Private Ryan, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, Monty Python, Search for the Holy Grail, right? I mean, we literally, if we had an afternoon, could probably just spitball films and stories that are telling this same story all day, right? It's the story that we just keep telling over and over. And I think one of the reasons that this is a story that keeps getting told and retold and lived and relived is that there is something deep within us that longs for this kind of community. Something uh, our soul longs for, something we were created for. And, And if this is true, so naturally, we do see it everywhere. We, we see it in the stories we tell. We see it in fiction and nonfiction. We see it reflected in anthropology and human history. We read about it in the scriptures. We see it in Peter's story and the journey of the first disciples. We see it in the first expression of church that we read about in the book of Acts. We see it in, in the movement of the early church that followed in all different kinds of places and forms. And, and in fact, we see it in varying points throughout church history, including today in places like Africa and China and the Middle East and others. And And yet, so rarely do we see or experience it in the American church in our time. And isn't that interesting? And I'm guessing if we could just sit down and process through uh, your story for many listening to this, uh, you might hear this and say, yeah, communitas sounds beautiful, sounds great. Uh, I love a good story, but that has not been my experience in church. Right, this beautiful, uh, uniquely deep kind of community of a people living out a critical mission together. Um, I don't even know if that sounds realistic. I just have not experienced it. And so, you know, I think herein lies a problem. Um, and, and I think this is part of the problem. I actually think that our cultural context in, in our country, in this historical moment, and in the church actually works against communitas. And I think over time, our expression of spiritual community, our church, um, speaking generally, capital C church in America, has become over time so deeply shaped by the values of Western middle-class culture uh, that it's, I think it's almost, I think the early Christians would sometimes have a really hard time finding the way of Jesus and what we're up to because their experience of community was so very different than our own. They, they signed up for and experienced something very different in following Jesus together 
than what we typically experience. And so uh, I just want to speak to and paint a picture a little bit of, of the differences here. And, you know, if we were in the room together, I would be writing this on a, on a whiteboard. And, and I just want us to look at the kind of community, the communitas, the values of the disciples in the early church that they lived out together compared to what typically gets, gets valued in, in our time. And you're going to see why this makes things like deeply experienced community and communitas so hard to create an experience. Um, looking at the disciples early church, I'd be writing this on the left. If you can see it in your head, uh, I think we could say, uh, adventure, right? There's a spirit of adventure. You, they, it's like, you never knew it was going to happen. You never knew which way the spirit was going to blow. You never knew what opportunities were going to partner. Uh, we're going to present themselves to partner with God in that day, uh, the disciples and, and the early church, uh, you know, at its best, it is this dynamic, responsive, adaptable community of people on an adventure together. And I think if we were to write over to the right, what is typically more true in the American church rather than adventure is we might write the word predictable. And for some, maybe painfully predictable. The, it's static, right? For for many, you know, their their kind of faith experience is relegated to an hour on Sunday morning uh, in terms of community, where their primary contribution maybe is listening, you know, politely listening to other people teach and share and sing a few songs. Um, going back over the left, uh, as we're looking back at the disciples in the early church, I think we could say risk, Right? There's adventure and there was risk. There's real risk. It could cost you your life, your faith in Jesus and living this out publicly with a community of people. And for the early disciples, for most of them, it did just that. They, it cost them their lives. If we're to move over to the right, our experience generally, middle-class values is obsession with safety rather than risk. Right? There's a middle-class obsession with safety. Um, right? I think for some of us, like... Man, if we had it our way, our kids would be wearing helmets everywhere they went, right? Uh, or this mentality that we need to protect our family from the big bad world, which sadly, I think, often takes us out of the very places that maybe we've been sent to be present in. Uh, the early church, back to the disciples, the early church, there was a real cost. So you had adventure, risk, and cost, right? Some, some left everything. Some sold everything. Some lost relationships. Some lost their lives, in our day in America, our value rather than cost, comfort, right? Many of us have been formed in church expressions that were designed to make us as comfortable as possible, right? We don't want to ask too much or we might lose them to the church down the road. Going back over the left, it was sacrificial, right? There was, there was a lifestyle of shared sacrifice in order to bless and serve other people. They took care of one another. They pulled resources for the common good. Uh, they provided for those who can provide for themselves. If you're going to be a part of the, the early expressions of Jesus's church, sacrifice was just baked in to the journey. And you go over, back over to the right, instead of sacrificial for us, uh, we could write the word consumer, right? We have, uh, the consumerism is, is so so baked into our cultural values that I don't even think we often realize that it's 
probably the primary lens through which we look at everything, including uh, church, right? What have you done for me lately, right? Well, that church, you know, the, the teaching pastors and good over there and, uh, you know, their worship is great, but I don't really like the worship over here or that space feel, feels weird or their kids program, you know, isn't as good as, as the churches, right? And go shopping for a church sometimes, like we shop for a pair of jeans. And, and some of our current forms of church have actually been built around this. And so it just propagates this consumeristic mentality rather than a sacrificial community doing this together. And then lastly, if we went back over to the left, uh, some of those early forms of church, the journey of disciples, there was this value of, uh, we might write we, and then like a greater and greater than symbol, I, right? We is greater than I. There was this mentality as they thought about their participation in community. It was this, it was me for the community and the community for the world. If you were to ask them what they were signing up for in being a part of the movement of Jesus with a group of people, it was the community is greater than me. The mission that we are on to the world is more important than my preferences or my needs or whatever. Me for the community and the community for the world. If we were to go back over to the right, uh, American middle-class values, I think we might just write the word me. Instead, uh, the community is for me, right? Just rampant individualism. And if we were to look at these words, uh, and I was to draw a circle around the list on the left and on the right, these, I mean, just think about it for a minute. One list, uh, we have um, adventure, risk, cost, sacrificial, uh, we before me. That list produces and shapes a very different person than the other list. And that kind of culture, instead of those first five, is predictable, safe, comfortable, consumeristic, me. Right? Can you, can you see that in your head? These are two very different sets of postures, two very different sets of values. And together, they create and shape two very different kinds of people and communities. You know, in this series, uh, I, I've just loved as we have deep dived and, and explored and parsed out uh, God's vision for community. And I love that one of the things we looked at is that God himself is communal, right? We see this value for community in the, the Godhead, right? It's embedded in his person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who lives in community and loves out of, uh, uh, loves out of that community and so it's no surprise then that, that God calls us into community. And apparently from the very beginning, uh, God doesn't want us to miss how important it is for our thriving and for who we become and living in right relationship with God, right? And so we looked at the book of Genesis from the get-go. God is creating the world and the cosmos and everything in it. And he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he sees man alone and he says, this is not good, right? And so we're looking at community because it's vital to who we are and who we've been created to be. We've been called and created not just to be a person, but to be a part of a people. But in the same breath, I think we also need to make sure we don't forget that community was not the point. It was a byproduct, right? Adam and Eve were not created to just sit around and love one another, you know, and just kind of hang out. Their relationship 
was was not the point of existing, right? They had a mission that they were called to. They had a purpose that God was up to. They were to live in right relationship with God and rule over creation in a way that reflects God's character, right? We see the same thing in Israel. Man, we could look at so many Old Testament texts where God is giving his people instructions on how they are to interact and relate with one another. But why is he giving them all of these directions? What is the purpose? Well, he has called this people to be him, uh, a people to himself, and they are to be a light unto the nations, right? People are to look at the way they, they interact and they love with one another, uh, the way that they live, the way that they worship, and, and see a reflection of God's heart and God's character. Right? We see the same thing with the disciples, right? We could dig in a New Testament te- text that talk about, you know, the one another's and how we are to love one another and treat one another, work towards reconciliation, all these relational uh, teachings that God gives us to direct our lives as we figure this thing out. But community in and of itself is not the purpose, right? No, we have been given a critical mission, right? Uh you know, leave your boats, leave everything, come and follow me. Right now, just as a father has sent me, so now I am sending you. Go and make disciples of all nations, right? And so I say all that simply to point out that community was never intended to be an end in and of itself. It's something that is created, something we experience together as we partner with God and his mission in the world. It is a byproduct of our lived faithfulness together. By the way, side note, this is one of the reasons that you will hear us talking a lot. And if you're around Commonwealth and at our all-family gatherings, I'm sure it, it also comes out in the podcast and some of the stories we tell. But it's one of the reasons we talk about microchurches all the time. Because microchurches are meant to be small communities organized around a critical mission. It is the optimal place to create and experience communitas together, right? United around a common mission, journeying together, living, loving, serving together, creating together. And, you know, I think we can experience maybe uh, communitas on some level, maybe, you know, in an all gathering space or like a Sunday morning space, if you're part of another community of faith. But I would just add this. Um, I think it is very limited. And I think the bigger that that space gets, the harder it is to experience. And, and truthfully, if I'm showing all my cards, certainly if you're part of Commonwealth, that's not really what this space is for, right? And so speaking to our all-family gatherings, I mean, to use a sports analogy, uh, it's more like a halftime huddle, you know? And I think most Sunday morning experiences are meant to be that for, for churches, right? It isn't the game. This isn't, it's not where the action is. Uh, it's a place we come together to worship and to reset and to be reminded of what's important. And I think for some of us, that's going to be a big shift for some of us because it can be very normal in the American church world to treat Sundays like the main event, you know, and we get led to believe that as long as we're faithfully attending and maybe giving and volunteering a little bit, that we're we're checking all the boxes of faith, a faithful life that matter most. And so I think it can be a bit jolting to hear Jesus's words, hey, push out a little deeper, only to realize maybe our boat isn't even in the water. And, and so I say all that, friends, simply to, to say this, you and I were created for more. And I think our our souls know it. There's some part of us that intuitively just knows 
when we hear these stories and we keep telling them and retelling them, that longing in our soul is telling us something about ourselves. We were created for more. More than huddle, just huddle and cuddle, you know, which sometimes is, is what, what we create in, in the modern American church. I love this quote. This is by John A. Shedd uh, back in the early 1900s. And you, you may have heard it before, but I think it's appropriate in this conversation. And he writes, a ship in harbor is safe, but that is not what ships are built for. And friends, you and I were built for more. And so I think you just land the plane in saying this, you know, so much of the depth and richness of our journey with Jesus is ultimately shaped by two things. Our willingness to say yes to Jesus, no matter the cost. And secondly, our willingness to do it alongside others. And the reason I love this idea of communitas is because it's where these two things come together, saying yes to Jesus, no matter the cost and doing it alongside others. And I will say this, it's not easy. It doesn't happen overnight. And it almost inevitably costs us. But friends, it's so worth it. So I'm going to close with a poem. Uh, It's a poem uh, titled Amen by Adrian Plass. He writes this. When I became a Christian, I said, Lord, now fill me in. Tell me what I'll suffer in this world of shame and sin. He said, your body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, I think. I think amen, amen, I think, I think I say amen. I'm not completely sure. Can you just run through that again? You say my body may be killed and left to rot and stink? Well, yes, it sounds terrific, Lord. I say amen, I think. But Lord, there must be other ways to follow you, I said. I really would prefer to end up dying in my bed. Well, yes, he said. You could put up with sneers and scorn and spit. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, a bit. A bit, amen, amen, a bit, a bit. I say, amen. I'm not entirely sure. Can we just run through that again? You say I could put up with sneers and also scorn and spit? Well, yes, I made up my mind. And I say, amen, a bit. Well, I sat back and I thought a while and then tried a different ploy. Now, Lord, I said, the good book says that Christians live in joy. That's true, he said. You'll need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. So you want to follow me? I said, amen, tomorrow. Tomorrow, Lord, I'll just say it then. That's when I'll say amen. I need to get it clear. Can I just run through that again? You say that I will need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow? Well, yes, I think I've got it straight. I'll say amen tomorrow. He said, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me, a quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity. The cost is you, not half of you, but every single bit. Now tell me, will you follow me? I said, amen. I quit. I'm very sorry, Lord, said, I'd like to follow you, but I don't think religion is a manly thing to do. He said, forget religion then and think about my son. And tell me if you're man enough to do what he has done. Are you man enough to see the need and man enough to go? Man enough to care for those whom no one wants to know? Man enough to say the thing that people hate to hear? To battle through Gethsemane and loneliness and fear? And listen, are you man enough to stand it at the end? The moment of betrayal by the kisses of a friend? Are you man enough to hold your tongue and man enough to cry? 
When nails break your body, are you man enough to die? Man enough to take the pain and wear it like a crown. Man enough to love the world and turn it upside down. Are you man enough to follow me? I ask you once again. I said, oh Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, amen. Amen, 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 amen. Amen, amen, amen. I said, oh Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, amen. Grace and peace, friends.